All right, we're continuing on this morning in our um, study through the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. And this is the last um, lesson in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians um, today. So continuing in, in 1 Thessalonians, we saw the first part of that letter. Paul was praising the Thessalonians for their faithfulness, the faithfulness that they'd shown despite severe persecution and suffering that they had endured in the name of Jesus. But then the latter part of the letter, Paul's challenging the Thessalonians, encouraging them to continue in their faith, to continue to stand firm and flourish in their faith and continue to do all the good things that they had been doing. So encouraging them. And last week we saw um, Paul was urging them to remain faithful by a commitment to sexual purity uh, with self-control and thoughtful consideration of one another in contrast to the culture around them, but also a commitment to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, Um, not taking advantage of each other but loving one another, working hard and serving one another, which Paul says when they live this way it will win the respect of all around them. So shortly before that, though, Paul offered a prayer for the Thessalonians where he says, May he, that is God, may God strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. So that was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. But now what he talks about here, this coming of Jesus and our expectation of it, That's something that he says should strengthen them and motivate how they live. But now Paul's going to build on this idea of this this coming of Jesus, fleshing out a bit more what that means for the Thessalonians, um, what it looks like and how it affects them and how they live. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, We could spend a lot of time talking about these verses Um, and these verses have certainly caused a lot of speculation, uh, even division amongst Christians um, as they debate what exactly Paul is talking about here. But we don't have time today to really go into too much depth about it. But it seems to be something that the Thessalonians didn't already know. So he's he's telling them about this this thing. And Paul's informing them now. But the question is why? Why would Paul talk about this now in this letter? And I think given 
everything that the Thessalonians have gone through, I think they were probably concerned about brothers and sisters that they knew who perhaps had died, been martyred for their faith um, and suffered. And so we're wondering, well, what, what's happened to them? Have they missed out on something now that they're dead? What's going to happen to them? And so Paul explains to them here what will happen. Most of all, that for them, this is a source of hope. Their death is a source of hope, not despair. That's Paul's main message here. Um, so what, what does he say will happen? Why does this or should give this give us hope? The first reason is because of Jesus' own death and resurrection. He says that we know that those who die in the Lord will also rise again. So their death isn't the end. Um, and sort of in case we're worried that um, those who die somehow are disadvantaged by dying before Jesus comes again. Apparently it was a belief amongst some Jews that those who were still alive when the Messiah came would be somehow advantaged. But Paul assures them that that's not the case. When the Lord comes, he says, the dead will rise first and then we will all together, the dead, those who were dead, those who are still alive, will rise to meet him in the air. Now that's Paul's main message here. That's what we really need to know. As much as we might grieve and mourn those who have suffered and died in this life, Unlike the rest of the world, we don't have to despair because it's not the end. We know that one day we will be united with God and be with him together forever. But of course, there's some, some tantalising details and descriptions here that it's impossible for us to not, to, not to sort of worry about, wonder about and think, well, what exactly does that look at, about? What does that mean? And that's where some of the controversy comes in in this passage, you know, does this passage describe this sort of rapture where the righteous ones suddenly disappear up into heaven, leaving everyone on the ground, as some people say? Where exactly do we go when we meet the Lord in the air? All these sort of questions people have often debated and wondered about. Wondered about. But the first thing I'd like to say about is that, as I said before, the details aren't really Paul's main point. And so they shouldn't really be our main focus either. He's not giving them a timetable about what's going to happen. He's not giving them directions about what they need to do, anything like that. When it happens, God's going to be doing everything. We're just passengers, as it were. And so as fascinating as it is for us to sort of wonder about these things, um, we shouldn't feel like we have to master all the details and argue over them because at the end of the day, that's the opposite of Paul's message here. His message is one of unity amongst brethren and the hope that we have and encouragement and comfort for one another, not arguments and division. So let's not focus too much about arguing over details. But there are some interesting things to note um, here. And probably the biggest question is, what, what does it mean when he talks about being caught up in the clouds and meeting the Lord in the air? And I wonder if it's this passage that sort of leads to the popular image of heaven being floating on clouds playing the harp. I'm not sure. But is that what he's saying? But when Paul talks about the air here, meeting God in the air, 
the word, specific word that he uses refers to basically the lower atmosphere. And the significance of that is that it's not the heavens, it's not space, it's not the stars, it's not heaven, but it's also not earth. It's sort of in between. And so Jesus comes down from heaven, but we also rise up from the earth to meet him. And um, so it's this, this meeting in the middle. And so the question that some people have asked um, is, well, so we meet God in the middle, does he then take us up to heaven? Or perhaps as some people have argued, does God then, does he come down to earth and, and dwell with us on the earth, a new and restored earth? Um, and, and people have argued about these things um, a lot. And I don't really have a definitive answer one way or the other. But I think that idea of heaven and earth coming together is the important thing for us to notice. Um, exactly where and how that happens isn't really significant. The fact is that heaven and earth are brought together. They're finally reconciled. After all of the destruction caused by sin, both um, the spiritual destruction wrought by sin, the separation of man and God, but also the physical destruction wrought on people, wrought on the earth, um, all of that destruction is finally going to be made whole, reconciled as God and his creation are once again uh, together like they were in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. So that idea of everything being brought together um, by God in Christ, I think that that's the most important thing for us to, to think about as we read these words. And ultimately, that's the thing that gives us hope um, because we know that no matter what happens to us on the earth, no matter the suffering, the sadness, the loss, even our death, despite all that, we know that we will be with the Lord forever in the new heaven and new earth that he is preparing for us. And so Paul says, encourage one another with these words. These words are supposed to be an encouragement to each other a comfort for us. So let's encourage each other with these words. So that describes what will happen. Next Paul looks at what will, uh, when it will happen and our response to it as we continue reading in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. 
Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Now, unlike before, Paul says this is something that they already know. He's just reminding them. He's reminding them, we don't know when this will happen. It could happen at any time. But that doesn't mean we can ignore it and forget about it. Instead, he says it should spur us into action. Because as he says, it's going to come like a thief in the night. Which, when you think about it, a thief coming in the night isn't just something that's sudden or unexpected, but it's also something that robs us of our peace and sense of security and all of the things that we've built for ourselves um, in this world. You notice there how the people, they think they're safe, they're confident, but all that will suddenly change, he says, without warning. That's a reminder for us that... All of this is fleeting. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we focus on our treasure in heaven, the coming of the Lord won't be a disaster because it's the realisation of that treasure. It's when we receive that treasure. Um, It won't be a disaster. But if we invest all our time building up wealth and treasure on this earth, it will be a big shock because suddenly it's all gone. And so Paul says we shouldn't be surprised by this because we're waiting for it. We're not, we warned about it. We know we're, we're expecting it. As he says, we don't live in darkness. We don't live in ignorance or folly. Instead, we live in the light. So what does that mean, that we live in the light? I think it means we live with our eyes wide open. Firstly, our eyes are open because we're aware of what God has revealed to us. We know what will happen He's told us, as we've just read. But also we have our eyes open because we're aware of what's going on around us. As he says, we don't bury our heads in the sand, dulling our senses with drunkenness and all all of those sorts of things, giving ourselves over to pleasures that distract us and and, um, make us feel better. So we don't sleepwalk through life, letting things just happen. Instead, he says, we're awake, we're sober-minded. In other words, we think and act with a clear-minded purpose because we know what's going to happen. We know what, um, who we are, why we're here and what we're doing and what's going to come. So we're awake and sober. But also notice what he says that involves. It's faith, hope and love Um, as he says the hope of salvation is a helmet that's what we just saw before the hope of salvation coming um, with Jesus going to be with the Lord Um, and so Paul reminds us it's only because of what Jesus has done for us, the fact that he died for us that we have this hope of salvation that we can wear which tells us how important it is to God that he sent Jesus to die for us. But also it shows that we can trust in it because it means so much to God. And so that should shape our attitude. 
but also he says we need to have faith and love as a breastplate, which shapes how we live. And Paul spoke about this in the last chapter, about how we ought to live in righteousness and purity and ways that honour God and with love for one another. And he's going to talk a bit more in the next passage about how we live. But these are how we prepare ourselves for Christ's return. And it's all about encouragement. Encouragement for us, um, the courage that God gives us because we know what will happen and we know that we will be ready for it. But also the encouragement that we can give others uh, by reminding each other of this message, by reminding each other of what God has done for us and building each other up. Uh, Again, as Paul says, that they have been doing. So in the next section then Paul shows what this looks like to encourage each other and build each other up as we continue reading. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good and reject every kind of evil. So I think this passage is all about building a healthy church body, which is so important in light of what Paul has been saying in this letter to the Thessalonians, to remain faithful as God's people in the face of persecution and suffering and to hold on to this hope that we have in, the faith, in, in, in something that we can't yet fully see. To do all this, we need each other. We need the church around us. And so there's several things here that Paul asks them to do, uh, them and us to do. Firstly, he says they need to acknowledge and support those who work hard for others, those who work hard for the health of the body. The best thing we can do is be thankful for one another and be thankful for everyone who serves and works hard uh, for the church in all the many different ways that we do. Paul says, acknowledge them, honour them, because it's, it's easy for us to overlook the hard work that, that other people do. We can be so often focused on our own lives and the things that we're doing ourselves that we overlook the things that ever, other people are doing. But Paul says to appreciate one another in this way is a great blessing because it shows that the work that we do isn't, um, it, it is worthwhile, that it's not um, wasted. And it reminds us that we do need each other. We're not in this on our own. In the book of Hebrews, it's, it's, Christians are told that we should submit to our leaders so that they work as a joy and not a burden. And I think it's a similar idea here. All of the hard work that we do should be a joy and not a burden. And so one of the ways that we can ease that burden is to acknowledge 
the work that we do, that other people do, to show that we appreciate and love them for it. So let's act, let, let's recognise that we are all in this together um, in, in the, everything that we do. The next thing he says there is to warn those who are idle and the destructive. So sort of like the flip side to what we were just talking about, to warn those who aren't helping the community, those who aren't working together as a team, whether it's through laziness or perhaps worse, making, actively making trouble amongst the church. Warn them. Because when the church is being persecuted and suffering from those outside, we don't need trouble inside the church as well. So we need to deal with that. Warn those who are disruptive. Next he says to encourage and lift up the weak, the disheartened, those who are struggling. As we've seen, encouragement is, is an important theme in this letter. You know, this is a young church experiencing suffering. Um, there will be many members there who are weakened by what they are experiencing, perhaps disheartened, um, questioning. Um, but it's Paul's goal here to encourage them, to strengthen them. And he wants, the, wants them all to be encouraging each other and strengthening each other. And we've seen different ways that they can do this. One thing, Paul says, is by telling each other about the second coming, encouraging each other with those words, also being reminded about what Jesus has done for us and the salvation we have. But also, just as we see, the way that we can support one another and be appreciative of each other. All of these ways that we can encourage one another. Another way that we do this is with patience and love for all. Patience allows us to do all these other things. Um, it allows us to get through difficult times. It allows us to deal with difficult people. Patience teaches us to remember that things might get hard before they get better. But if we hang in there, hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus, hold on to the future that he has given us, that will help to put the struggles that we face now into perspective so that we can patiently endure them. Then there are the three, these three things that we're told to do all of the time. Rejoice always, pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances. And I think these are all ways that we can help to maintain a positive attitude by keeping our minds focused on God, focused on what he has given us rather than being focused on the struggles that we face or the things that we might miss out on in this life. So these are some disciplines that can help shape our mind um, so that we're shaped by God and his word uh, rather than being shaped by the world around us with all of its troubles and its lies. Um, so if we can, if we, by rejoicing always, by praying continually, and by giving thanks in all circumstances, we can, um, that, that helps us to have this positive attitude as we, we recognise the good things that God has given us rather than the suffering that we might be experiencing. But there's this call to consistency because he tells us to do these things not just sometimes, not just when it's easy or convenient, but always, consistently, persistently do these things. 
which I think reflects what Paul was saying earlier about being sober-minded. We shouldn't just fall into these things willy-nilly or let them happen when occasionally. He says, sort of set your mind to it. Do these things all of the time. Don't let it be an accident. We need to be rigorous and focused on doing these things. It's only then that they'll really shape us and change us into the people that God wants us to be. And finally, he says, we need to work with the Spirit. In all of these struggles, the Spirit is our helper and our comforter, both as individuals but also together as a church. So we need to work with the Spirit to be built up together and endure these difficult times. So Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. Listen to what God is telling us and doing among us. But of course, with sober judgment, testing everything by the word and only holding on to the good and turning away from evil. So Paul then concludes with a prayer that kind of sums up his message. He says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all, people, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul sort of has three concerns here. Firstly, that they be blameless when Jesus comes again, that they be ready, but also that they know that God himself will make them blameless because of what Jesus has done. But also he wants them to take care of one another. And I think these concerns are all connected and he's addressed them all in this letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, the, The underlying thing is that The spiritual realities that that God has done for us should transform our understanding of our current circumstances. As he said, their hope in Jesus' return gives our present suffering meaning and allows us to persevere through whatever this world throws at us. But that understanding should change how they live, um, motivating them to live in holiness motivating them to live by the Spirit, to live soberly and watchfully with purpose and an awareness of God's truth. But also as they do all of these things, that should bind them together as a church, as a family, as they live for each other, helping each other, encouraging one another, supporting one another, teaching and reminding each other of these things with love and affection. I think that's what Paul's been trying to do in this letter to the Thessalonians, which I think is a really encouraging letter when we read it and we understand um, the suffering that they were enduring, but the faith that they were showing and that Paul was encouraging them to continue in um, with everything that they were doing. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start looking at 2 Thessalonians, which was written shortly after this letter, but it, and so it sort of follows through on many of these ideas even further. Uh, so we can look forward to that in a couple of weeks' time. So I hope that's been encouraging for us all as we've looked through that, that letter uh, of 1 Thessalonians. I know I've found it very encouraging.